0: This is a Media Lab podcast. Dave, I can't believe it. We've been going in the wrong direction for the past week and a half.
1: Well, what do you mean? There's direction in
0: space? I know. uh, You have probably seen that Star Trek movie where all they have to do is go up and (laughs) then they're apparently not being able to be seen. That's not what I'm talking about here. No, we're physically going away from Earth. I don't know what happened, how the machine got us all topsy-turvy, upside down. Machines. I think this is due to you not having watched Million Dollar Duck. I think this is our punishment for you not actually watching the full movie.
1: Uh, I mean, if anything, we're being punished that you did watch it.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, we need to get back on track here, Dave. Come on. No more funny business. No more joking around. No more goof-em-ups. Did you say goof ups goof ups yeah. <laughs> so, here. you You take this. Uh, and just read that script. It's the it's the only way that I can get off that we can get off that we can get off this spaceship. Oh, well, that's some Freudian.
1: About. Yeah, we just went Freudian Oof. there. So who do you want to get off?
0: On a Rinky dink spaceship headed back to Earth, Kyle and Dave are stuck on board with an evil machine. This giant robot is forcing them to watch films it picks. If they don't obey, then it'll be the end of the world. Again. This is mostly Kyle's fault, but he's not gonna face an apocalypse alone, especially not on this ship that seems to be held together with tape and imagination. This is Kyle and Dave versus The Machine. Welcome to Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine. My name is Kyle. I'm Dave. And I'm the Machine. This is a podcast where a sentient machine was forcing us to watch movies in order to prevent it from initiating the apocalypse. And then another apocalypse happened. Somehow, it's used its powers to transport us across time and space. So now, we're on our way back to Earth. The Machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to. Although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today, we're going to be watching the movie... Carnal knowledge. Ooh. It came at a time when we were all younger.
1: Don't press so hard. Since then, we've been through many changes. What, what are you so afraid of? Not you. And one thing that put us through those changes was carnal knowledge. First Cindy, Oh no, not Cindy. How about Sandy? How about Cindy and Sandy? Carnal knowledge. It once shocked America. What kind of man am I?
0: A real man.
1: I wouldn't mind giving her something.
0: Man who inspires worship.
1: I like to be smothered by you.
0: More strong.
1: More masculine.
0: Got your heart.
1: Something has to. Domineering or irresistible.
0: Carnal knowledge. Jack Nicholson. You know, a big thank you to our patrons, Green Girl, YYC, and It's a Conspiracy Podcast. Keep
1: the dream alive.
0: I don't know even where to start with this movie, Dave. I think what we should do is first, this is our first jack nicholson movie jack that we're watching so i need to know what's your history with jack attack <laughs> the jack man <laughs> the jackster
1: yeah you know jack and i go back i'm just trying to think of the first it's probably batman so he is probably per, yeah. yeah perennially the joker i hated chinatown oh and then he had that big 90s uh rom-com sort of uh stuff so as good as it gets no uh What's well, anger you, he won his
0: third Oscar for as good as it gets, Dave. <laughs> uh, so,
1: <laughs> anger management, which I thought was hilarious. Um, I remember liking.
0: It's like one of one of the last, if not the last, good Adam
1: Sandler movies.
0: Adam, well, Adam Sandler movie I saw in theaters. Oh
1: yeah, that's fair. Uh, oh, that what's the not about Schm- what's the one where he's really old and he's got oh the bucket list.
0: The bucket list. Yeah, yeah, I, was, yeah. I was like,
1: he crosses stuff off his bucket list. Yeah, the movie, the bucket list. What are what are his big He has so many big movies. Oh, a uh, Few Good Men. You know what? A Few Good Men. I was did in I the watch 90s. A Few Good Men before I watched No, Batman. A Few Good Men. Yeah. Anyways, he's great.
0: I think you've knocked off some of them here. I mean, there is that 70s run. Like kind of right after this movie that we're going to be talking about here today is where he starts to kind of get his bigger roles going on, but yes, there's The Shining, but there's also like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Right. There's uh, oh my gosh, terms of endearments. There's, I'm trying to, now I'm struggling to remember Mars Attacks, Dave, nope, of course. Nope, Mars I Attacks. Disavow.
1: Disavow. <laughs> uh,
0: I, I just always bring it up because Jack Nicholson, for me, has just always been there. He's always been like this larger than life personality. People have, have parodied his voice, kind of made fun of him for. Years and years and years, he was literally front row of the Oscar telecast. He saw him the entire night. Uh, if you're a basketball fan, I think Lakers. he still sits lakes, uh, courtside on Lakers games. He's just ever present in our society,
1: the diaspora. In our culture.
0: The diaspora. Uh, I just hope, and th- th- he was supposed to a couple of years ago, like he hasn't made a film in almost 10 years now. At this point, he old. I just wanted to. He's old and I get it. And he's like, he's made more than enough money for him to never work again. Like, I get that. But a part of me, I just really want him to make one more that's good. You know, like give him like a Paul Thomas Anderson or even like a David Fincher or something to bring him out of retirement one more time. Do this really great supporting role and be like, I'm out. (laughs) <laughs> right? I mean... That, that's his no. final role. Instead of it being like, there's like wah wah where his like last movie like didn't make money, no one saw it and the critics who saw it hated it. So, you, it's like... You either go know.
1: out on top. He could do The Departed 2. Re- yeah. The Departed again. Departing again.
0: <laughs> Arrivals A- is actually what it's going to be called. Yikes.
1: there are too... Uh, yeah, it would be cool. I don't know though. You know, the thing I'm learning as we research all these actors and directors. With the exception of Clint Eastwood, there's this parabolic curve of everybody's mm-hmm. careers. And yeah, a couple of these guys transcend that. So, Jack's curve is very long and broad. Yeah. But at the end, you know, should Clint even be in movies anymore? He's pretty <laughs> sure. he's pretty broken down at this point. Yeah. So, Jack's
0: well, probably- so, sorry, to, pre- to that point, yeah. again, kind of talking about this movie. Apparently, there is a movie coming out this year, 2021, called- the Queen Bees, I think. And so it has like Ellen Burstyn, Anne Margaret, Jane oh. Curtin, and James Caan in it, in this old folks home type of thing. I was going to say, how are uh, they keeping Lloyd, everybody standing? Christopher Lloyd. <laughs> Christopher uh, Lloyd's like, still alive. That's great. He's still alive. Yeah. He was also in like an action movie with the uh, Better Call Saul guy, Bob Odenkirk here, and oh, Nobody. that's it Nobody?
1: Movie. Have you watched that yet? No.
0: I did. Yeah, yeah.
1: Oh, oh right. Yeah, we talked about that. Yeah. We won't talk Anyways. about it.
0: The, the, the big overall, what I'm trying to point to here is that there's some people that you see them now, and I think that Anne-Margaret at 80 is like, oh, you know, she's still Anne-Margaret. Yeah, of course, 80 years old. But um, And then you see James Caan like, oh, you are almost dead. Like, you <laughs> look old. So, like, you look very, very old.
1: He's like James Cromwell. He looked old in The Godfather.
0: Uh, not, not to the degree that I just saw him in this trailer <laughs> <laughs> moments ago. He looked old and Elf. Yes, that is true. Yeah, yeah that sorry was to look, yeah.
1: almost 20 years ago. 20 I years think. ago now.
0: Yeah. How is that possible? Weren't the 90s only 10 years ago? How about Mike Nichols as a director? I definitely have not seen the majority of his movies, but some of the bigger hits I have definitely seen of Mike Nichols.
1: Yeah, so, you know, I don't know the name offhand, but when we did a little digging, you know, his uh, his movies, particularly, again, that little hump, this dude made some good movies. Uh, Who's Afraid of well, Virginia Wolf? Yeah,
0: he's the the weird one where, talking about a curve, he almost has like, I would. this is my own personal opinion, is kind of like a U-shape, which is like huge, 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 nothing for like a decade, and then bounces back again with these huge movies again. Uh, So yeah, he has a really interesting film career.
1: I might have said M, an M-shape?
0: Maybe maybe that's a better better one.
1: Yeah, if your first movie is Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? I mean, that's kind of a U-shape peak, at least yeah. in film, although he was already quite a famous dude on the comedy and yes. the and the Broadway circuit. Yeah. Uh what were his big
0: 90s, his resurgence? Well, just before the 90s was Postcards from the Edge. Oh right. You have Bird World, Cage. Birdcage. He did a, a TV movie Wit, but he also did Angels in America, the HBO series, which was like huge, he was like won every Emmy that year. <laughs> so that's kind of what he's doing in the 90s. He also did Wolf, which Bombed and was not very critically. But I remember Wolf, like that cover of the VHS is still burnt into my mind. So. I'm
1: pretty sure I saw that in theaters because it it's Benicio, too, right?
0: He is. Yeah. Which is weird because he's also in the Wolfman, the Wolfman yeah. years later. But yes, Benicio, I believe, is. I in mean, Wolf.
1: is it Mich- I don't know if it's Michelle Pfeiffer, but I just remember that coming out and had three actors. And I was like, you got to see this. This is going to be great. Yeah. And it was, uh, it, was it was not. good.
0: It good. not good. <laughs> um. Anyway, I'm a, a huge fan of Mike Nichols. I do know some of his comedy career. You would most <laughs> well if you watch enough documentaries about comedians. Invariably, one of them is going to be like, "Love Nichols and May." Love Nichols and May. And the, and, and once you hear that enough times, like I don't even know who these people are that you keep talking about. And then you research, it, like, oh, they were the biggest fucking thing in the like 50s and early 60s like the biggest thing and so that's kind of how i got into him and like oh wait so wait he's the guy who then did this it's like oh that's wild and then she had her own great career too mostly as a writer but also directed and stuff as well um, and she just won a tony two years ago uh. <laughs> as well for acting um acting. interesting they came together we'll talk probably more about this in the contact setting grew apart and they kind of all they grew apart, came back together, grew apart again. It's a great history and a really fascinating, I think, backstory. And this is also straight up my alley because it's all like Hollywood story and intrigue and people fighting. (laughs) I was going to say Broadway and
1: probably it was on The Simpsons.
0: Well, Dave, I'm looking forward to jumping in and talking about this movie because even though I know Jack Nicholson, Jack, I know Mike Nichols, Mm. I... Don't really have any familiarity with this movie whatsoever. Yeah, nothing. Like, have you even heard of this movie? No. Yeah. It
1: sounds like a horror movie.
0: I agree. Like, the 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 actual title sounds like it's going to be that or very, very sexual. I don't know. Carnal. Yeah, Carnality guess... and stuff like that. There's that kind of thing that's brought into that.
1: Not that we've seen it. But I guess you could argue it's kind of both.
0: You could. You could argue that it's both. <laughs> Why don't we go and thank some sponsors and then when we return... We'll be getting into a little more discussion about carnal knowledge. Carnal knowledge. I'm just saying, Dave, I want to be known by like a one word hyphenate. I just think it's so cool.
1: Wait, what's a one word hyphenate? Give me an example.
0: Anne-Margaret, right? Ah, oh, right. Anne-Margaret. That's just her, that's her first name. That's not her whole name. No, uh, it's just, And Margaret. What, what would mine be? What, if you had to give me a hyphenate, what would you call me?
1: The Sondheim Stalker?
0: No, I, I got nothing. <laughs> can I just call you Brown Sugar then? That... Oh, wow. <laughs> that got uh, awkward. Oh, it got super weird. awkward. Do you think Jack was ever not Jack? Do you know what I mean? No. Like, I bet even at, like, 12 years old, he had, like, the eyebrows. It was like, come on, man. Like, you have to <laughs> just being, like, I'm just weird.
1: To, I'm trying to imagine. I mean, you could totally picture it. Elementary school, that kid, you know, is with yeah, his eyebrow. Up.
0: Comb, like, combing his hair <laughs> back and everything. Actually,
1: when we get there, we'll talk a little bit about his crazy upbringing.
0: All right. Yeah. Well, I we're here in the ad section here, Dave, and not to throw anybody under the bus, but part of our ad copy may not be ready for us to talk about yet. So we're gonna do our best with these.
1: Fudge it. I'm uh, gonna fudge it.
0: We're gonna fudge it a little bit. I have to start off, of course, by saying that Kyle and Dave versus the machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. And I get to talk to you a little bit about Park Power, which is who is bringing you this episode this week. They're your friendly local utilities provider in Alberta, offering internet, electricity, and natural gas with low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. You know, in Alberta, Dave, you you might not know this because you're simple, but you get to choose who to buy your internet, electricity, and natural gas from. If you switch providers, nothing changes about the delivery of these utilities to your home or business. And if you have an existing contract, you're going to want to find out the terms before leaving. And if you don't, then it's even easier to sign up for Park Power. You, as a consumer, have the choice of who you pay your bills to. Why not you choose your friendly local utilities provider? You can learn more at parkpower.ca.
1: Sorry, Kyle, were you talking to me? I zoned
0: out. <laughs> I know you were just looking at the wall blankly. Dave, uh, I'm sure you have a rich piece of ad copy to read about our sponsor here this week.
1: You know, Kyle, let me ask you a question. Uh, Yeah. Can you see?
0: I cannot, actually. I'm (laughs) blind in my right eye. So I'm very, very blind.
1: It seems like we need to take... I know this is going
0: to seem extremely rude, but I'm breaking in to talk over Dave here right now. So the original ad copy that Dave was reading here was kind of just made up off the top of our heads, as you probably heard in the lead up to this and we still have not actually received the real ad copy. So instead I'm going to talk to you about a new second sponsor and that is ATB. Specifically I want to talk to you about ATB Cares. With ATB Cares, giving is easy. Donate through ATB Cares and ATB will match 20% of every dollar donated to eligible Albertan charities maximizing the impact of your donation. You can visit atbcares.com to choose your cause and donate today. See, that was pretty easy, so uh, I guess we'll go back to our in-progress ad copy read. Nice. Shall I spell it?
1: Well, that's what I got. How was that? That was was okay.
0: That was was decent. All right, Dave, we have just watched the movie, and... (sighs) I'm, I'm teeing you up here. I I texted you this. I know we were are watching this on the same couch, but I'm sure it's going to be another fight, another week where wow. lowly little Kyle gets yelled at for an hour.
1: <laughs> I I'm pretty <laughs> sure you did all the, the yelling at Dirty Harry, but we'll hear we'll hear it.
0: <laughs> so tell me tell me about this movie, Dave. Tell me what your thoughts are on it.
1: Well, I don't know what's to tell. I mean, I don't know if we're going to fight that much. We do agree on this. How we watched it, which was on uh, Apple, I, iTunes, they're not called iTunes anymore. Apple Movies It's probably the best digital restoration I've seen of a 70s film. It's yeah. fantastic. It looks they're still so grain, clean.
0: But it's not like blurry. If no. you know what I mean, like it doesn't feel like it's muddy in the image or anything. Yeah. It looks great. It looks beautiful.
1: Clean, high dynamic range, but not overdoing it where you, you feel like they've tampered with it. It's, it's beautiful. Probably looks better on the screen than it would have in the theater. Now I'm selling it. But I'm just saying, uh, we agreed yeah. on that. It's, it's visually eye candy. I'm not ugly. I was just coded that way. We do get to see, I guess, a young Jack. Although I don't think he's any different than he is as old Jack. He's pretty much right. the same with more hair. We see Art Garfunkel. We see Candice Bergen. We see like, there's yeah. just, it's an all-star cast. It starts off interestingly. Can definitely tell there's some male existential angst, even from the voiceover to start off. It reminded me thematically of both Last Picture Show and uh, Summer of 42, just in, in mm-hmm. its terms of like being written about, I don't know, lost childhood. And this one is, uh, I, I, you don't, it's hard to tell until they get in there, but a university college dorm, do they call them colleges yeah. in, in America? You know what challenges me a lot with films like this is when they start to intentionally devolve and they start to, I suppose, satirize the male experience. It gets so violent so quickly and so cruel that I often end up asking, you know, why does this exist? What am I supposed to get out of this? What experience is worth sitting through? And it's short. So what, what did you say? An hour and...
0: It's like, I think it's just under a hundred minutes, yeah. to be honest. So
1: it gets through it. I left intellectually intrigued, but also sort of emotionally drained, particularly with Jack. I know he's, uh, it's a precursor of a whole career of sort of psychopathic roles he's about to get, but uh, Mm -hmm. there's a reason why he got those roles. I mean, he's fucking nuts in this thing. There's everything you want. Uh, Toxic masculinity, gaslighting, abuse, although not necessarily physical. We have the objectification of women. We have kind of weak-ish women roles. Uh, We have very 50s, 60s, and 70s cultural (laughs) nods. And then I read this supposed to be a comedy. I didn't laugh once, so I don't know.
0: Uh, Yeah. I think that's a little bit overblown. I think it's as much of a comedy as what The Graduate is a comedy, which is it's often billed as. It's called a comedy? It is. It's called a dark comedy, is what The Graduate is. And I think there's a lot actually of similarities between this movie and The Graduate, uh, both directed by Mike Nichols. But yes, I I agree with you in that sense. It's like there are funny statements. There might be like a funny quip moment (laughs) that happens. But yeah, I'm not like laughing hysterically throughout this movie. By any stretch of the imagination. Uh, I don't even feel comfortable calling it a satire. I feel that word is overused. It is definitely an exploration of males. And I think having done my own research after the fact. So I didn't know this before going in. But uh, it makes so much more sense when you know that the writer started this off. Because he was like, why do so many males heterosexual males why do so many heterosexual males seem to hate women Mm. like that was his starting off point and i think that that is what the exploration is between these two characters that are friends but are also quite different one is very alpha one is i would say not so much that's the arc garfunkel character and you see them go through to the point where like the jack nicholson character eventually is so impotent like he isn't able to really communicate what he wants He gets what he thinks he wants and that isn't. And it eventually gets to a point where the only way that he can get like sexual gratification is you follow this script and say exactly what I tell you to say. And that's where it's like, I feel this movie is so modern feeling to me. I think you could literally make this movie, make literally no changes, film it today, and you could still put it into theaters and people are like, yeah, okay. There's heightened language. Like it is definitely... A playwright writing this. So, like, there's speeches and soliloquies and things going on. I get that. I think that's also part why I like this movie a lot <laughs> it is because there is that heightened feeling to it and it's exploring a topic and a feeling and an idea to what they want, what they perceive to be that fullest extent. So, I think, yeah, there's a lot to talk about in this movie. I think it is exploring that toxic masculinity. I think it is exploring the idea of what do you want actually in a relationship and what happens when you. Seemingly get what you want. I think just the final statement I want to make here at the very beginning is that the reason why I love Mike Nichols so much is that he definitely came from theater first. And I love his attention to detail, where you can feel that this was a play originally, but he understands how to use a camera to also tell this story. Um, there's at the very beginning, I love that scene where Art Garfunkel goes up to Candice Bergen the first time, and you just see Jack on the far right side of the screen, and he's reacting, 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 and then he, he gets fed up and leaves frame, and that's the first cut we get. (laughs) So now we're just with these two, because it's more important to know what he is doing. And there's something that happens later, uh, in that first front section, where they're all around the table, joking back and forth, but it is only focused on Candice Bergen. You don't see the other two. And you see her laughing and telling jokes, but you can also see her facial reactions when certain people talk. And you know who she's annoyed with and who she's actually interested in. And I think it's such a fascinating thing to be like, yes, it's important, in quotes, like what they're saying, but it's more important to see what the other person is reacting. And I think that that is such a fascinating way to direct a movie, where it's like, I could have yeah, definitely shot this scene with three people around the thing um, and tried to do that. But it's so much more effective to be. No, we're just focusing on her. Her reaction is actually more important in this scene than anything else. So it's those little kind of attentions to detail that I'm a big fan of in this movie. So there's style, there's substance. And yes, I get emotionally depleted as well. I'm not going to say like this is like I am invigorated after watching this movie, but I am I guess the intellectual side of me is much more fulfilled than what it sounds like yours was.
1: Well, I will definitely agree at the beginning all of those decisions, all of those decisions to set up the narrative get them in that mixers but having mm-hmm. the two different uh, college mixer, yeah. Yeah, the two different uh, gendered Schools meet up to presumably get down and get busy. <laughs>
0: um, I in a collegiate I, manner, of course. Yes,
1: I love too. In that opening sequence, uh, the whole the whole sequence is great. You know, you you see the alpha beta thing. Although my argument there is that usually when you do a comparative, one of them should have some redeeming qualities and. Mm. Art Garfunkel's character is weak, but also an asshole, so it, oh, yeah. it's not that redeemable. The 50s vernacular is hard to understand how they make fun of each other, but finally mm. Art goes in, he, he dodges it twice. They're calling dibs on on this woman. But my favorite part, you're right, the lighting and having, um, having Jack in the back on the far right, you always see Candace sort of peeking over
0: Art's shoulder yeah. as well,
1: because she has noticed- uh i can't remember their name sandy uh jonathan
0: jonathan i think is his name yeah
1: so that's great and then the the affair shot beautifully as my know we talked about you know it looks like the first time she has sex on screen it's with a bear because you're not supposed to know <laughs> this is bur- yeah, yeah you're not supposed to know well, that's the
0: thing too is like i'm pretty sure that's jack but it's like i wasn't sure i wasn't sure i was like oh it is it's jack yeah it's great tension She's that having an affair with him now
1: Whole build up of uh jack sort of undermining his roommate to get mm-hmm. with the same woman. but you, And you get that peak of how uh, psychotic he is, even from the beginning. Never mind having the affair, the way he's egging on Art Garfunkel. so He is set up as the villain.
0: Psychopaths are my biggest turn on. Yes, and he's kind of our main character too. But I also, I've been thinking about this since we watched it. I know it was only mere moments ago, but pretend it was like two days ago. What I keep coming back to is that I wonder if that is... That's the inciting action is him going after his best friend's girlfriend and eventually winning her and then losing her and then his friend never knowing that that ever actually happened. And I think that that is the catalyst for the rest of the movie. I think that is the start of his own impotence is that that hiding that from his friend is a bigger thing than what he can actually admit to himself. Because later on the movie, he tries to get him to sleep with his own wife. Yeah, he freaks out when another character suggests that he would ever cheat on another man's wife so i would never do that i would never cheat on sandy it's like well you did though so like you seem to be pretty aggressive against this so i think that there's the like that initial act that he did is like totally (laughs) devolves him as a human uh, more so like i don't think he was like a great altruistic person before that but i think that really devolves him for the rest of the movie
1: you know, it's interesting. I wonder, not that I'm a big fan of deep fakes or CGI sort of faces, <laughs> but uh, one of the things that we talk a lot about delving back into the past is that everyone looks old. I mean, I, can't, I yes, forgot to look yeah. up how Jack is in this, but.
0: Jack is 35, I think, in this movie so, or 34.
1: So when you start off in college and yeah. both him and Art look like they should be the professors rather than freshmen. Yes. You know, connecting those dots like you just did, I think you're right. And I think it misses only in the sense that when I started this movie, it took me so long to get seated in the, like, what stage of their life they are. Even though they're talking about having never had sex and all this kind of stuff. uh, And there's a lot of veracity in how, uh, at least on the male perspective, heterosexual males will kind of talk about sex. Usually, I mean, I guess... In the modern times, it's starting to happen a lot earlier in life than right. necessarily in the in college. But we saw that in summer forty two, we see that a little bit in Last Picture show, you know, this so called loss of innocence, this idea of expectations versus reality. And then as you brought up, is that character devolving because of a, a childhood mistake, acting on an impulse because he wasn't mature enough to understand the implications of what he was doing? Yeah. I think in the writing, that's probably what this movie is supposed to be about. Yeah. Uh, well, the I ending think, the sequence, more I think to spoil it is that he's he's for whatever reason he's showing a slideshow of every woman he slept with
0: i know it's like you are psychotic yeah. <laughs> what are you doing <laughs>
1: but then he uh they show the the glimpse of uh what's her name sarah is it sarah it doesn't matter um, oh what Candace Susan?: yeah. yeah susan I uh, think, yeah. and then he's like oh that's a mistake and then art kind of sandy figures kind of it sees out. it figures it out but this yeah. is allegedly 50 years later 40 years later so, yeah, it is a loop and I I didn't get that, you know, when I'm watching this film because it doesn't look like the age, I had so much trouble just trying to contextualize what part of their life they were in until they would make yeah. a direct reference, oh, I haven't seen her in 10 years or this hasn't happened in 15 years, that by the end, I, I just, I didn't really f- follow that. It might be why this movie is not remembered because it is trying to do some very incredible narrative things. It gets lost a little bit. The other thing visually talking about his shooting style, the thing that broke it for me, you're talking about being in a theater. I really disliked when they would do the almost a fourth wall break and speak to me directly on the camera. I think it ruined the immersion into the actual narrative and it really uh, set me off. Took me a while to kind of get back to where they were. So uh, there were a couple little hiccups
0: yeah like yeah I, I i think the one part that i agree with you with is the fact that they keep the same actors throughout the movie this is something that i believe you can get away with on stage a little mm. bit easier than you can in films with costuming uh, and i don't know why that is why we can believe it's like oh yeah like they're 12 even though it's a 30 year old man and it's like yeah, yeah he's acting like a 12 year old and i can envision that it, and it works on a stage in a movie because it's more permanent and maybe because you can do close-ups more where it's like, it feels much more intimate. I don't think it actually works. I know we're in 71. I I don't know what the, there would have been two other options they could have done, which is either hire different actors for that section of the movie and then bring them on later on, which could have definitely been true or hired even younger actors for that section to be okay. And then age them up afterwards. And I don't know what the better option is. I, 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 For for me, it wasn't like a deal breaker, but it is weird when it's like, um, you look 35. Yeah. <laughs> and you do not look like a college student. The closest one is Candice Bergen. I think she was 21 or 22 at the time of this filming. And
1: she, yeah, she's regal. She looks great yeah. in it. And uh, I always love her I think everyone looks face. great in this,
0: weirdly enough. I think everyone is kind of beautiful in this movie. Yes.
1: Yeah. I, oh, well, I just, I have a, uh, I guess a little... I got a little crush on Candice. I always liked her when I was young and she was an older woman just because she looks intelligent. I know that's so yeah. demeaning, but there's just something about her where I, her her character works so well for her because the first, I didn't even catch what they were saying. It was all these, uh, not plays on words, but they had this little uh, yeah. philosophical argument as their but, way yeah, to flirt, uh, yeah. talking about, and this was central to the, uh, to the movie, you know, who am I to you? Who am I to somebody else? Are we ever the same person yeah. all the time? etc.
0: Which I think does somewhat get paid off later on. But yes. yes.
1: Um, the final scene, which only on reflection, I appreciated more. Yeah, full spoiler. The last scene is basically- With Rita Moreno, is yeah, what you're talking about? That yeah. That Jack's got to pay a, presumably a, a prostitute yeah. Yeah. Uh, to read a script for him to, quote unquote, get off. But what I loved about that, and that was the only sort of, you know, front facing shot that I really appreciate is when she's going through the narrative and she's making the illusions of him getting his uh, penis erect, yeah. but it's actually talking about his ego. And yeah, I thought that was a great way to sort of try to bring the themes of this together. I, it's just that at that point, I don't like following stories about psychopaths. <laughs> you know, it's yeah, it's just hard to get
0: something out of it. I guess I don't know this is this is the difference between you and I, which is like. <laughs> This is the stuff that I love the most. It was like, ooh, like let's just pick apart like what they said. And I was thinking of other films because I think, again, talking about Mike Nichols, his first film, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, is an older couple who fights the entire movie. Uh, and that's what the play was that it was based on. It's an older couple literally fighting the entire movie. This one breaks it up a little bit, but essentially is like an argument, almost for like that last half at the very least, of, of Jack and Anne-Margaret. Like, just going at each other. He getting the better of her, I think, for the most part. But, like, it's they're in it. Like, they are saying awful, awful things to each other.
1: Well, you didn't think that was more uh, unidirectional? I mean, it was so much more. Like, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? The magic is that Liz and Richard, they're both monsters and they both... Yeah, go at it. Yeah, and they both have power. You know, they're both empowered in that dialogue. I found the whole thing with Anne-Margaret, she's great in it, but... She's just being abused. She's losing every battle and she doesn't have enough written underneath her character to like even feel like she's going to get it. She's just going to, I thought she was going to die. She kind of did in a sense. She kind of does, yeah.
0: yeah. Um, at least written out pretty quick uh, <laughs> yeah. when she collapses, but uh, I think she gets a few good barbs in, I would say. I think that there are a couple of moments where she's able to say a sentence and you can see that like, it really affects oh, for him sure. yes. quite deeply. So I think there was enough of it there for me. I, I was going to continue that on to like more recent films, though, but there's like Marriage Story, for instance, right? Where there's the classic scene of you know Adam Driver punching a wall, but it's like they're awful to each other. Malcolm and Marie, the one with Zendaya. And um, Denzel Washington's son. Uh, well, uh, yeah, Denzel Washington's son. I should know his first name. Anyways. Is it David? Uh, David something? Is it David Washington? It could, it could be. Uh, anyways, we're, we're around.
1: We're doing okay. Uh,
0: I, I, I want to <laughs> bring pause. those up because like, I enjoy marriage story. Maybe not as much as what some of the other critics did. I really hated Malcolm and Marie quite a bit and I was trying to figure out like so why do I like this movie so much and I think where it comes down to is that there has to be this like very fine line that I think the Virginia Wolf and for me personally this movie get that some other movies don't in the same genre. You have to have, like, this thematic point that you're reaching rather than it just being about the argument. And that's what I felt Malcolm Maria was. It's like, I am literally just watching people fight and it makes me uncomfortable I don't like it. And you're trying to be, like, high-minded and, and stuff, but it's like, no. You're, what you're really doing is you want to see Zendaya, like, ripped apart for an hour and a half. Whereas this movie, it's like, yes, Jack is awful and I don't sympathize with him. And at the same time, it is still this fascinating exploration of how men treat women. And his own impotence growing, so to speak, throughout the movie. So it was enough for me to be like held throughout the entire narrative. And I think it is good that it's only about a hundred minutes. I don't think you could stretch this out any longer. I think it's the perfect length for that exploration to really fit.
1: I've been thinking all year about kind of the same thing. You know what? What is a tragedy like in principle as a narrative device? And my thought recently has been that the use of violence and and uh, pain needs to be coupled with some sense of grace whether it's a moral lesson mm. or like you brought up some underlying thematic quality and so when we watch something like uh, virginia any any film where people are in tension if the true sort of undercurrent is to promote something that we agree with individually then we can pull information out of it that makes it worthwhile these are why some of the transcendent Shakespeare plays that are fucking brutal can still arouse an audience even today because you know human nature itself is undeniable and we are all capable of all the things that happen in this film and any film where people are fighting but we also want I think as viewers uh, a sense of hope even if it's not mm. within the characters we want I think some type of resolution whether it's a comedic foil or a secondary character that is Living a best life that we just see in the corner, or an illusion even in their uh, arguments of something they wish they could have and they can't. But the thing about this film, which really kind of snuck too much under my skin, was that, A, like for example, Anne Margaret's character, all she wants to do is be married, have kids. Mm-hmm. Like that's a bit poisonous. And I feel like, I don't know if this is a 2021 perspective, but. It is weird to see her portrayed in a sense that she's supposed to be fighting this guy who refuses to get married. He hates women, clearly. He wants to dominate them. Mm-hmm. And his antithesis is somebody who wants to be domesticated. It's, it's just, it, it wasn't exciting for me. I I thought it was kind of brutal.
0: It is stark. That's interesting to that bring up because I think that in general, I agree, which is that there has to be something there. There has to be some sort of, you used the word grace. I think that's a a good enough word to keep using. There has to be that, that little bit there so that the audience isn't completely devastated. So I don't know. Now I'm grappling. I'm trying to figure out why I like this so much then <laughs> when when, when, there isn't, when there isn't that resolution well, there.
1: I wonder, I mean, I don't know, but I wonder, you know, th- this is a fascinating, it can be a fascinating window into sort of, let's say, heteronormative experiences, uh, experiences of our you, you and I, anyways, our parents' generation, you know, this uh, boomer generation. I mean, I think young, we'll talk about this at the end, I suppose, but young people who are raised by Gen Xers or or later, apparently, Alex, I feel like that connection to how, in this case, men view women and use women is evolving so much that maybe it's not uh, going to be as, as resonant, but perhaps there is something to be said that I know anyways, many male friends of mine that would be intimidated by this film because whether they want to accept it or not, they certainly speak about women in this way. And it is why in some social gatherings, I don't go to them anymore because, and I, and this sounds so arrogant, but I can't be around people that brag about how many women they've slept with, how this woman is better because of the size of her, you know, breasts or, you know, her Mm -hmm. legs aren't long. Like all of the satire is the wrong word, but it's intentionally placed uh, into these characters to only describe women in these terms because it's supposed to make fun of uh, how men have been speaking. And we see that in television shows that are, you know, mad men and all these things that have tried to use this era. The better era. Do we agree on that?
0: As you've been talking, I think I can verbalize why. And again, it's... it's, (laughs) It's a feeling I have and uh, that, that Mike Nichols is bringing to this. As much as Jack and Art are focused on power and domination, because I think there's never like any physical abuse that happens in this movie, I think that's key. Because at the end of the day, it's actually the females who hold all the power in this movie. It, it's the men who are flying off the handle and acting foolish and... Uh, ridiculous and even in that end scene she holds (laughs) the power of his ego and his libido in the palm of her hand literally and figuratively and even in Anne Margaret's case yes she can get emotional and stuff like that but she only has to say a few words where he goes and flies off the handle and says like two pages of dialogue in response to it to get to the same reaction from her so I think that it's subtly showing and even Candace Bergen like she is the of obviously the more intellectual of all three of them. I think it's really showing subtly that all of these women that show up in the life and, uh, art Garfunkel's like second wife, first wife who is like more manly. They say oh, the tennis player. Yeah. They are actually the ones who are holding the power because they're not letting their emotions like run wild with them. Yeah. Um, and then, and then Jack has to go like these ball buster women, right? Like that's, that's his reduction of, of these, of these people.
1: I like that. I mean, I, I think that it's, yeah, if we were to imply intent, then I would say that that's probably there. I think that for, it's- for, for
0: new listeners, Dave doesn't think there's ever intent in movies. <laughs> so I just want to put well, that out
1: there. I, I just don't want to put too much credit into the writer, especially in this case, you know, a male writer. And we read a little- True. You sent me an essay about uh, some conversion <laughs> camp and some- Did you read that whole thing, by the way? Uh, I got through- 75% but I had started reading it before we watched this film together yeah, and I realized yeah. it was becoming a major spoiler of the themes of right. this thing. So, no, uh, this morning uh, before we watched yeah. this, <laughs> after, I uh, have been doing some
0: home rentals. So, no, I have not finished it. On the, on the ship, you're doing some rentals? What are you doing on this ship, Dave?
1: We need, we need a hardline connection to the internet mm. to broadcast this
0: show. We do have some spotty Wi-Fi yeah. occasionally. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I think this is why I feel disappointed by this movie because I think you're right. I think that all the women in this have this stoic nature. There's an attempt to put them above the emotional and brutal, childish uh, characterizations of the men, but they don't have enough of a chance, with the exception of Candace Bergen at the beginning. She gets a lot of screen time and you get to see her play both sides, get stuck as a young woman because she gets caught in her own little you know, tryst, but she is very level-headed throughout the whole thing yep. and intentional. Uh, but after that, the women become sort of, they just they just aren't in the film enough. And I right. i started feeling like they were being objectified, really. And when you brought up Anne-Margaret, she does have a a, a great uh, number of lines in this, but because she starts getting reduced more and more into this uh, castaway object, by the end, I, I didn't uh, really understand whether she actually had a role of power over him or he was just completely mentally unhinged and, yeah. and she was just meant to be a victim.
0: By the way, I also, talking about like different body standards, in no way, shape or form do I find Anne-Margaret fat in this movie and yet she's referred to as such like multiple times. No, I, I'm like, there is no, <laughs> there's no way that she is. But she's taught, she says, they say that she is a couple of times. Well,
1: like, the yeah, the uh, tennis player uh,
0: skeleton does. But I think whoa okay okay body shamer over here. I
1: think uh it is an interesting thing we've been bringing up. It's like Summer of 42, you know that uh I can't remember her name, but the crazy model who is the uh love object of the teenage boy. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I mean she has the 70s ideal of beauty, but she is not a woman that would have been you know, like attractive in the film standards of the 1940s. So, right, um, right. there's an evolution there, but it is great to reflect on, yeah, Anne-Margaret's a beautiful woman. Actually, all of the women here have such yeah. a great element. So, to your point, I think they're cast in a certain way so that we are uh, not just attracted to them physically, but attracted to them as, uh, as actors. I just wish there was a little bit more for them to do, um, yeah. to kind of push back against Jack so that we can really see... A comparison that there is some way to salvage yourself instead of just being on this trip where eventually you're, sh- you're inviting a friend over to do a, a yeah. slideshow to prove that you had sex like 15 times
0: <laughs> in a way i was hoping for canis bergen to just reappear one more time I and thought, like, give it like a dig or something like that i was like, waiting on her way. Up. but yeah. um let's do this let's do some backstory here then so carnal knowledge is released on june 30th 1971 It is currently rated 7.0 on IMDb, it has a 77 on Metacritic, and on Rotten Tomatoes, it has an 87% from 30 critics and 72% from 5,000 plus users. You can buy it on DVD or Blu-ray, and currently you can only rent it on iTunes. There's no buy option, uh, no other streaming options available in Canada. Uh, Its budget was $5 million. It would go on to make $12.3 million, which with inflation would be if a movie made $81 million today. So not a horrible. It was the eighth highest grossing movie of North America in 1971, which uh, would never happen in the year 2021 that a movie like this would be anywhere in the top 10. So that's something.
1: If you put a couple of capes and tights, I think it would be okay. Yeah.
0: Uh, I mean, I am still waiting for someone to kind of do that, which is like, we're going to do cardinal knowledge, but with Superman and Lois Lane. (laughs) Comic books make a billion dollars. Have you been snooping in my rough drafts? Its plot description is chronicling the lifelong sexual development of two men who meet and become friends in college, which tells you nothing about this movie, by the way. Or everything,
1: or everything, depending (laughs) on what your assumptions of those titles are. (laughs)
0: it uh stars jack nicholson as jonathan our garfunkel as sandy candace bergen as susan and Anne margaret as bobby is there anything else we want to say we've already talked a lot about jack and candace a little bit i i only know candace bergen from murphy brown to be brutally honest like that's really the only thing and uh if you buy like the old seasons of saturday night live like i was doing for a while she hosted quite a few times in the early years
1: i didn't get a chance to be honest to get through most of their background on their bios um you know, of course, Garfunkel, we joked, has to play second fiddle.
0: That's unfair. In everything that he's in? Yeah, that's yeah, unfair.
1: I didn't realize he was so tall. Or maybe Jack's pretty sure. Sh- there was a part where he first was seducing Anne Margaret where he clearly was standing on a Tom Cruise level box because all of a sudden, <laughs> his shoulder was right, higher right, right. than her head. Uh, the only thing about Jack which I thought needed to be said, I don't know if you know this, but his mother uh, had him when she was only 17 and there were some uh, problems, you know, with uh, paternal acknowledgement. And so he was raised by his grandparents under the guise that his mother was his sister. And he didn't find out. Oh, I know that. Yeah. He didn't find out that his sister, quote unquote, was his mother until she passed away. And the grandmother passed away. And Times did a background check on his life.
0: Oh my God. And they
1: revealed it to him. So the whole time he had grown up, he realized later what
0: age would he have been roughly? She was when only they,
1: 17. Oh, uh, 1974. So he's
0: Oh, so like, Oh, close just to after this. this. Yeah. So
1: he's like 30, 34. He's born in 37. Boy, so. that's
0: a lot to throw at you all, all at once though. Yeah.
1: He's quoted as saying like, that is the most traumatic experience of his life. So I, again, this is all through Wikipedia stuff. So I can't give you the exact dates of how this yeah. came about and who wrote the stories, but apparently to protect his, Mother, because she was only seventeen mm-hmm. at the time in in that era. The grandparents uh, raised them both as their children, and right. he grew up thinking his seventeen year old seventeen year senior sister and it turned out to be his mom.
0: Okay, well, That's so why that, is Crazy uh,
1: Face? I and mean, that's a lot. That's maybe, a lot to maybe process. It is. Maybe-
0: <laughs> But maybe that's why he's like been such an old soul for so long. Like he was just being raised by grandparents and um, his early careers because he had already been acting for like 12, 13 years before this point. Like he'd been in all the old Roger Corman horror films, the original uh, uh, Little Shop of Horrors. He's a dentist in like I know some of that stuff, but like this is really the start of his like huge yes. uh, leading man career.
1: Oh, the only thing I want to bring up too, and it's too much, Jack, but apparently his first job in Hollywood was assistant to Hanna and Barbera. Oh, that's fine. And they offered him a job as a junior animator because he, so he that's could have so been funny. drawing Yogi. <laughs> that's so of...
0: <laughs> funny. I always say this thing about Anne Margaret, who I, I can't think of a better f- phrase. So I apologize, but up until this point, she was kind of known as a sex kitten role in movies. Like she was in Bye Bye Birdie. She was in a bunch of musicals and stuff in the 60s. But this was the first time that she was actually asked to act, quote unquote, in a movie. Uh, and then has been acting ever since she's 80 something now and still acting in movies. She's so, fantastic
1: in this movie. Yeah. Again, I just wish they gave her more to work with.
0: More to do. Uh, this is written by Jules Pfeiffer and directed by Mike Nichols. And I swear to God, Dave, I'm going to try to not make this 30 minutes long. We're already over <laughs> I, time. Just go I for I it. really compressed this. Okay. <laughs> So I just think that we need to talk about Mike Nichols's influence in Hollywood at this time and how he got to be mm. there in the first place. Okay. Uh, and to, to be fair, I am also reading the Mike Nichols biography, which is adding in a bunch more context for me, and it's been great so far. Mike Nichols, born in Berlin. His father's family had to escape Russia because of what? The Russian Revolution. This keeps coming back, Dave. I don't know why the Russian Revolution is Nick so Alex, important in 1971. We're going to have to watch
1: that movie again, because I'm sure yeah. it's going to be better every... <laughs>
0: Yeah, Every like, time I go back. You no, know, that he caused Mike Nichols to happen, basically.
1: Oh, that's Mike Nichols' dad in that scene.
0: <laughs> so they eventually emigrate to New York City. He has a bad case of whooping cough at four, and as such, lost all his hair, meaning that for the rest of his life he had to wear wigs. His mother takes him to see plays and movies, which inspires him, but he does kind of like aimlessly wander around after high school. He doesn't have much of a direction. Eventually finds himself at the University of Chicago. Now, this is where he meets Elaine May, and that is a very important name for him and for a lot of different things, because along with those two, Nichols and May, and a bunch of other up-and-comers, they begin something called the Compass Players. So this includes Shelly Berman, Nancy Ponder, and Del Close. I know that some of those names might not mean much to other people, but they are huge because we talked about Del Close and Billy Jack, by the way, because he helped develop the improv. Uh, school that those kids are coming from weird this is the start of american improv all those people the compass players become second city oh they were all make making it up as i was going to say which is good for improv but really making the rules and like what makes good improv and how you do the yes and technique and all this kind of stuff they were at the very beginning of that nichols and may begin performing together They're grabbing some success in Chicago, but they eventually say, you know, we both need to move to New York if we want to take this to the next level. And then they go massive. Uh, This would have been in like the late 50s to early 60s. Nichols and May, as they called themselves, uh, were this comedy duo. And not just a comedy duo, but the biggest comedy duo of the time. And it's really hard to understand, I think, how revolutionary they were. They were doing things that were modern, attracting a young audience, and with comedy that, in my opinion, still works today. Did you watch the videos I sent? What
1: what videos did you send to me?
0: I sent you in the same email, three videos that you could click on and
1: watch. Hold on, I'm looking. While I look, I just wanted to add one thing. Sure. Did you read on how uh, he and May met?
0: Yes, that is also in the book, but you can tell it if you would like.
1: Well, I just thought it was, I mean, I only know the summary, but I thought it was interesting because it comes up a little bit in this film. About how he approaches her on the train pretending to be a spy with a affected accent and then she actually yes. responds in kind so they they, and hit so it they off. just
0: keep improving back and forth but jack a- and Candice bu- talk about that in the bar yes
1: yeah fine there are links i just saw the pdf so i clicked the uh-huh, pdf uh-huh. you know
0: well uh, you should watch those videos though dave because i think it gives a good sense of their comedy and again you could take those bits put them into 2021 i i guarantee you people would still laugh i think Guaranteed. they're that good um, by guarantee. the way cu- talking about the graduate there is an old Nichols and may bit that shows up in the graduate um i don't know how much you remember that movie but one of the first times him and mrs robinson kiss she's actually smoking a cigarette and then she has to take a breath so she has to puff smoke out of the side oh, of her right. face while they're kissing that's from that was an, that was an old Nichols and may bit Anyways, 1960, they start a Broadway show where they are improvising each night. Huge success. Sold out crowds every night. And they're really helping to define both comedy and improvisation. But in 1961, they break up. uh, And it was really May who instigated it. She did not want to continue doing the improv thing. She wanted to play around with form and style. Whereas Nichols... Was more than content doing the exact same thing every night. He was perfectly fine doing that. I was like, yeah, whatever. I'm making money. I'm. This is fine. He had no ambitions to do anything else, which I find hilarious. I hit my <laughs> microphone. Broke sorry.
1: something. You're so agitated. It's great. <laughs> I
0: uh, I just find that hilarious because it's Nichols who ends up having like this huge, long directing career. Who's and is talked about how he changed Hollywood and and everything. Whereas May it doesn't get that recognition. Although that was her impulse at the very beginning. And I think it has a lot to do with misogyny, but that's for a a discussion. Are you suggesting that
1: men have a favorable environment in America? Maybe,
0: maybe I am. Fascinating. There, it was actually not an amicable split either. Like they got really nasty with one another um, and didn't talk for a few years afterwards. But they reconciled by the late '60s. They had patched things up and were friends again. Now that they were solo, May goes on to do some more writing. Nichols moves on to directing plays. He kind of just fell into this. But in particular, he becomes known for doing Neil Simon plays. Do you know who Neil Simon is, Dave? Uh, no. That is bonkers to me. But okay, you don't know who Neil Simon is. This is going to just be a side note then. Neil Simon, and I hate to always make this comparison because there has to be better comparisons out there, but just for our discussion here, basically the marvel films of his time like putting neil simon play or neil simon presents was enough to be like i'm paying money for that and we become a huge blockbuster and people would flock to it nichols goes and directs one of his plays that he's working on called barefoot in the park uh with a little unknown actor at the time by the name of robert redford hmm. so it was robert redford's first acting a gig on broadway uh, before he started to make movies it becomes super successful it's the t- it's still the 10th longest running play in broadway history uh, massive hit and it was that production that saw nichols realize his skills at directing being able to handle actors visually telling a story working with the playwright to rewrite scenes that weren't working and he actually won the tony award for best director of a play for barefoot in the park uh he didn't go to do some other stuff like the knack and love l-u-v That starred a little unknown actor at the time called Alan Arkin, and Nichols wins his second best director of a play for that play. Then would come another huge success. He goes back to working with Neil Simon in a little play called The Odd Couple. So that original run had Walter Matthau and Art Carney and was a bit of a fiasco in and of itself. Matthau was not great to work with, apparently. Uh, He needed to rewrite most of the second act when they went to out-of-town tryouts. (laughs) Art Carney had an anxiety attack and had to miss like a week of performances because he just could not handle Walter Matthau Uh, but when it came back to Broadway huge smash hit went on to be a very successful movie and Nichols won his third best directing award Tony for that so he has three Tonys under his belt by this time so of course he's had this huge success on Broadway Hollywood wants in on this action this was back when when you had success on Broadway, Hollywood actually wanted to work with you. It actually mattered.
1: Sorry, Broadway.
0: Well, I mean, it's true. Like, there's... Yeah, it's true. So there's a few different options he has, but he eventually goes with his first directing effort being Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? This had been a successful play on Broadway a few years beforehand, and uh, he was also friends with Richard Burton, because at the same time Nichols and May were doing their thing on Broadway... Burton was in a play across the street, so they actually struck up a friendship when they were the downtime and during matinees and stuff like that. So he gets um, Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton to sign on to this movie. He wants to direct it, and with their star power, they're in their one of their famous flings at the point. They basically force Warner Brothers to just let him do whatever the hell he wants. So it was Nichols that forced it to be shot in black and white to add the additional scene at the bar. Uh, to allow him to have very provocative language in the 1960s, because they actually swear in that movie. And the only reason that Warner Brothers released it uh, uncut is because he also happened to be friends with Jackie Kennedy at this time.
1: He's a friendly guy. That's
0: a long story unto itself. But basically, she went to a screening with the ratings board and the Warner Brothers executives... And after the movie ended, she just got and was like, that was a wonderful movie. You really need to release that. And that was all she needed to do to basically be, okay, we're going to uh, release this in the movie theaters. Smash hit, nominated for 13 Academy Awards. As far as I know, and someone can fact check me on this, I think it's the last time a movie was nominated in every single category it could be nominated for. Hmm. Taylor would win one for her performance in that movie, and he was nominated for Best Director. He then follows that movie up with The Graduate, which is another like huge cultural touchstone. Dustin Hoffman had been in like one movie before. This is like a little bit part. So this was his like first like big movie, but changes Hollywood, right? Uh, This is revered by the youth of the day for speaking to their issues of disenfranchisement and feelings of alienation, uh, which is somewhat hilarious. And Nicholas has commented on this before, which he always felt odd about because he was like approaching 40. And he's like, I am not of that generation. I was just trying to make a good movie. But it's one of those things where it's like a happy accent where it just totally speaks to like the the times.
1: Did you uh, read about the scoring of that film?
0: Yeah, that he was in the editing room and playing Simon and Garfunkel over and over and over again. And he was like, I have to use it. I have to use this song. Songs. I,
1: I read, I don't know if this is true, but I read that he actually had hired Simon and Garfunkel to write yeah. original music for it, but they flaked on him. So well, he, had, yeah. he had to use their past catalog, and he's responsible for putting all of these big moments. You know, using the music to to put this thing. Ask them to change it yeah, to Mrs. Robinson. There's, I don't
0: there's know. some, give, yeah. There's some big back and forth there because the original lyric of Mrs. Robinson is Mrs. Roosevelt. So he asked them to change it to Mrs. Robinson, <laughs> so they would fit into the movie better. You're right. They there was a whole. A lot of stuff going back and forth at that time. That in and of itself is also a bit of fiasco, because as he, as the book talks about, as his biography talks about, it was one of the few times in his life that he actually felt unsure of himself. Like he had this big head; he was big on Broadway, and now it's like I have to prove myself again. And so he started second guessing himself. So he like call actors back after months. Um, of filming and then never used those scenes that he filmed and like I don't know how to put this into that spot and like He was just it was hard for him to put the movie together the way that he wanted to He was actually kicked off the movie actually at the very end and they hired someone else to come in Although he would like call in and talk to the editors and tell them what to do and then just do what he wanted The city was convinced this was gonna bomb It was gonna be like one of the worst movies he would ever released but hits a chord with the young audiences goes on to be nominated for seven Academy Awards He only wins one, which is for Best Director for Mike Nichols. Before 40, he has three Tony Awards and an Oscar to his name. And as a little plug, I've talked about this book before, but Pictures at a Revolution... It's such a great rundown of that year, 1967, because it talks about the five movies that were ultimately nominated for Best Picture and how it was really this fight between new and old Hollywood, with new Hollywood eventually winning out at the at the end. Anyways, so that's written by Mark Harris, who also wrote this Mike Nichols biography.
1: You're so predictable.
0: Things are writing high. Huge successful Broadway director. Has this Oscar. He gets to cash in now this blank check that Hollywood is basically giving him, right? You're having huge successes do whatever you want next he decides to adapt catch-22 have you ever read the book catch-22 yeah, dave I
1: still might have it you still love yeah, that book yeah
0: I, I have it on my shelf Madness. from what you recall from what you recall does that sound like an easy book to adapt no It should all?
1: never have been a film it's hard it's hard enough that it was a novel it's i it's hard to
0: read <laughs> everyone would basically agree with you dave because <laughs> if you've read that book it flashes back and forth. You're in this person's head for the majority of it. There's really not a cohesive plot really to talk about, um, but he wants to do it. He's like, we're gonna get it. He gets Buck Henry, who wrote the graduate script to come and help him out. And it deals with the military tangentially, but his, his idea was to satirize and to pointedly condemn the military industrial complex, especially Vietnam, by using a different war as a backdrop. Things went out of hand so quickly they flew down to mexico which was hard to get to and hard to get supplies to which means like everyone couldn't leave things ran over time by months like we're talking it took like nine or ten months to shoot this thing He was like Kubrick in a way like he thinks had to be perfect He became like this perfectionist on that movie set up all the Explosions and the timing and the planes flying in because he had the real planes that he had bought for this production And you was like nope. Let's do it again. Nope. Let's do it again So that starts to get cost overruns when you're doing like five explosions for one for one shot over time There's also cuz I watched all of these movies actually in preparation for this week I watched catch-22 There is a shot that is so bonkers that would of course be done with CGI today, but it is a real plane, so these these, these two characters walking towards the camera, this actual plane comes and lands on the runway behind them, you keep following the two actors as the plane goes past them and out of frame, and then it sweeps around and that plane has exploded. And it's just like, you, you have so much money on this screen to do that. And I think he had to do that twice, actually, wow. that scene specifically. It's his
1: apocalypse now.
0: It really was. And people hated this experience. It was a miserable experience. Like this podcast. Alan Arkin was his first movie. He wanted to quit after the second week. because' like, I don't want to do this anymore. They got Orson Welles to do a guest spot in that movie, and he, of course, being Orson Welles, wanted to take over the movie like, as soon as he set foot on the ground. He's a piece of work, if you ever read up about him being an actor hired on for a movie. It did not go well. Tied into this is his like crumbling relationship, his like fourth or fifth relationship he has had here in the past few years, uh, with one Penelope Gilliatt. Do you remember that name at all, Dave? No she wrote Sunday Bloody Sunday Ah. and was also the critic that would alternate with Pauline Kael back and forth. To add Agony to this, like, it's a troubled production. They're trying to cobble this together to make something work. I will say, to the movie's credit, I don't think it's like an abomination. It's not good. But it's not like one of the worst movies I've ever seen. There's actually some great stuff in it. Plus, it has like
1: Everybody almost
0: every comedian you can think about at the time like Bob Newhart is in that movie Bob Balaban is like a young man is in that movie it's it's wild but what really hurt it was that in January of 1970 another movie was released called mash and kind of stole its thunder because it did everything that Mike Nichols wanted to do and it kind of did it first (laughs) but funny and actually did it well. Uh, So that is the failure that Mike Nichols is coming off of. And he desperately wants to do something that's not going to require special effects, large casts, or even the slight possibility of it running overtime. Which is when Jules Pfeiffer approaches him. Jules Pfeiffer started as a cartoonist, talking about cartoonists with Jack Nicholson. He was working under Will Eisner, so doing actually like um, newspaper things for like the spirit and stuff like that. He eventually goes over to the Village Voice where he'd draw cartoons up until like the 1990s. He's also a playwright, so he comes to Mike Nichols, says, Would you like to direct this play I've written called True Confessions? And Nichols reads it and says, Oh, I love this, but it would make a better movie. And that becomes this movie, Carnal Knowledge. And though it was only five years after Virginia Woolf, where he'd had to fight so hard to get certain words to be done, it was such a different atmosphere five years later from 1967, that that was not at all an issue. This does. Do you know the thing that this movie pioneered? Pioneered. at all? No. It is the first movie ever in the English language, I guess, to use the word. And I am going to because I only say this once because I hate using this word. First movie to ever use the word cunt. Mm. Fun little fact about this movie. <laughs> he actually says it twice in this movie. By oh, the way, Jack. we already talked about the prompt about like this was why do so many heterosexual men seem to hate women. Nichols says that he realized this play in many ways was about him, which is a scary thought, and so he wanted to make it and kind of think, work through those issues himself. Cast a bunch of young actors who hadn't really broken through yet. The exception was Anne Margaret. Anne Margaret was known at this time, but this was her first time to to act. Uh, Nichols actually wanted to hire Alan Arkin for the Jack Nicholson role, but Arkin was like, I'm never working with you ever again, after Catch-22. And as opposed to his other films, the film the filming actually went pretty well. There's no giant blow-ups or like, you know, divas that he had to worry about on set. Uh, it was released to generally positive reviews. It made a bunch of money. And Anne Margaret was nominated for Best Supporting Actress at the Oscars. The only nomination that it actually got that year. That is kind of the, the background information to this. Uh, anything you want to react to from that?
1: Uh, one thing we should add is in addition to his Oscar and his Tonys, he'd already won a Grammy.
0: Right, because yeah, him and yeah. Uh, uh, Nichols and May had already won
1: I only bring up uh, a Grammy
0: in like the 1960 for their record, yeah. which is actually still considered one of the best comedy records of all time by a lot of comedy aficionados.
1: So. Uh,
0: he would not get his EGOT, I don't think until Angels in America, where he yeah. won all nice. of the but all of the Emmys. He's got an ego. He's uh, he's the real. Plus, he's deal. friends with Stephen Sondheim. Dave, how could he <laughs> be a bad guy?
1: Well, not just Stephen Sondheim. If you're hanging out with Richard <laughs> everybody. Byrd, you know, he, like Richard Byrne. He, was, right.
0: he, was, he was very rich at this time. He was like raising horses for fun. Like Why he was so fucking Americans rich. Americans
1: and raising horses. Why is that? Well,
0: it's so funny. It's like he did it for a goof because he thought like, well, rich people like raise horses. Right. And then he actually liked raising horses eventually, which is funny. Livestock. I said at the beginning that I think that this has more to do with The Graduate rather than Summer of 42. And the reason being is that in The Graduate, you have, like, the Dustin Hoffman character is this disenfranchised, like, doesn't know what he wants to do with his life, and then, like, gets into, like, these really awkward relationships. As other movies have rightly pointed out, a lot of people think that The Graduate has a happy ending when it really isn't supposed to be a happy ending on the bus, where it's supposed to be, like, this is not ending well. Like, this is, like, what have I done? Like, this is not... this. Relationships not going to end well. She's probably going to get off on the next bus stop. <laughs> I find it's that character aged up as he's actually going to college. Like that's what it's what it really is. Is him trying to deal with women and realizing that in all his relationships he's just using them as objects and really not learning anything either. Like he, there's no like emotional arc that he's going through.
1: I guess that's fine. I mean, I don't really see a direct line there. Only because. And I've brought up several times i maybe it's jack I, I just I feel like there's something too cruel, even from the opening scene about how uh, Jonathan, Jack's uh, character, is addressing the world, so first it's through Sandy, then it's with uh, Candice, and uh, Susan, and then it's you know through all of the. Women that he's yeah, never mind dating. Like when they cut to the first adult scene and they're watching the uh, beautiful figure skater. You know, he's not just objectifying her. It's 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 quite brutal. He's evaluating yeah. every aspect and what he would do with her, and etc. There's no softness. There's no innocence. There's no naivety. It feels very pointed. And as we watch him devolve uh, in a very Kubrick-esque. Sense even the shots by the end were getting all that that super wide, you know, to show I'm so isolated. Um, mm-hmm. which just I don't know, this movie to me was more about the degradation of his psychology than anything else. And I, yeah, I feel like the graduate it was more innocent. It was, uh, for all uh, that it did, it was addressed. I mean, this might be why kids uh, liked it, it was emotional, uh, even in its deadpan nature. Because it was trying to share one generation, uh, sorry, one age experience. I mean, Dustin Hoffman is, what is he, 17? I can't remember how old he's supposed to be. Uh,
0: yeah, he's, yeah. I think he's supposed to be 18 or 18, 19 or something in that movie. Through the
1: whole film. So, we're just watching the end of innocence, you know, yeah. in a sense. But this one, we we see a full life of a gross person doing gross things and ending up Grossly. Even though he's rich, he's got the American dream. You know, he's got. He's constantly bragging about his money and all the women that he gets to uh, fuck because it's not really making love. I mean, he's. It's so gross. Like, but that's the end, thing. Like,
0: just... even with that, like awful slideshow that, he, that oh, he's making, God. right? Yeah. Which is like he calls them. Like he says, I think that's what this one's name was. Yeah. Like, he doesn't even call them a people. He doesn't see them as people. I mean, and, and I think it's Art Garfunkel even says, like, maybe you're just not supposed to enjoy making love with the woman you love. Yeah. And it's like, whoa, that is a very telling statement that you just said there. Uh, and I think there's all this psychology. And I I, I wonder, again, this is this makes my head go fire in a bunch of different places because it's like, boy, that talks a lot about, I think, men at that time, what they were allowed to say or do with women, what they were allowed to say or do with men. And what love was looked at being. And I think they have this really terrible view of what both love and sex are. And they keep enabling each other (laughs) throughout the entire movie. Uh, I also want to point out the fact that what I also think is... This for where people really understand this context about why maybe certain women would endure relationships... Is that we have to remember it was not until 1974 that women could actually go and get a credit card by themselves in the United States. Like you needed a man to open a bank account to like be self-sufficient and stuff like that. Which I think is another layer onto the end Margaret things. I want to be married because it makes my life actually easier even though you're not being very easy to deal with. There's actually very societal things in place that makes it more attractive to be like I just need to be with a man.
1: Contextualizing the female experience of of 1971 is important. It doesn't, however, make this movie better. Sure. (laughs) You know what's scary is as we're talking about this? I mean, it's not even past tense. This is how many, not just heterosexual men, but many human beings view each other. And if we want to go In a very broad generalization. And as we see, whether it's through COVID or all of these uh, wars and uh, crimes and all this shit, um, there's a core piece of us that is Jack Nicholson or is Mm -hmm. Anne Margaret or is yada, yada, yada. You know, whatever it is in any of these movies where they're trying to reflect on human nature. But it is why I've been reflecting that, at least with narratives, uh, structured ones in plays, novels, films, we need, we, I, I need, I require. Yeah, let's rephrase that, yeah.
0: Dave, you need. Yeah. I need
1: uh, a at least a single line, you know, a thread somewhere that is, if not a hopeful one, at least a deeper reflection that uh, A, acknowledging this is real, but B, giving us a light to get away from it, you know? And when it's too cynical, like in this case, where there is no redeeming character, we are become resigned to this idea that this is just how it is it's like that thing my son's growing up and you already hear it in playgrounds boys will be boys this is just you know this kid just hit me with a stick oh that's just what boys do fuck that that's not what boys do right you're not
0: that's what you that's what you allow boys
1: yeah you're not genetically programmed to poke somebody in the fucking face with a stick that's just not how right it's 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 culture formed. Uh, And as you brought up, yeah, if in 1971, women require men to uh, gain access to some form of uh, freedom, then yeah, that is definitely a layer that I'm missing because that is not the world I grew up in uh, and one that has to be added to reflection of this movie. But at the same time, why not attack that as well? And this is what I mean by not having enough depth with the women. They're great in it, the actresses, and they're given lines. But if we could just get one, one more little peak that the, maybe the only reason why Anne Margaret's character is so desperate for marriage is not because women need to be married, but because she needs a purpose in her life that, can't, that is blocked away uh, mm. unless she's married to a rich man. Because that is not how the 50s characterized women. The housewife was not someone who had a secret life on their own, you know? They were just literally, and they brought up homemakers. You know, when they talked about Susan when he's married, he's like, when I get home, like whether we're enjoying each other, the, the house is perfect. And I just, right. I could just sit down and drink my whisk, whatever the fuck he was saying. Yeah, it's yeah, disgusting. Yeah. But anyways,
0: You wanted them to, at one point, just turn to the camera and be like, I guess that's cardinal knowledge. <laughs> and then. <laughs>
1: <laughs> womp, womp. Yeah, what a- <laughs>
0: that's right. Uh, okay. I just want to go through just these very, very, very quickly. There's some of the notes I, I wrote down. I really liked again as far as like framing in the image. There's this moment when they're in college and they're in the steamy bathroom and you can see Jack in the mirror and it's like the steam is like perfectly covering Justice his butt Venus, so that yeah, you don't yeah. see it. I'm like, yeah. that's really clever. I like that. <laughs> we talked about how she that Kenneth Bergen's character is different with both of them. Mm-hmm. Like she is a different person with either of them. By the way, her favorite book she says is The Fountainhead, which does mean that she probably would have voted for Trump then in
1: uh Oh, I don't know. I didn't in, look in the elections. It up. Yeah.
0: It's Anne Rand. Look huh. up Anne Rand if yeah, you ever I wanna. See. There is a penis in this movie, though, which I thought was what? interesting. I missed it. And, I saw and the side changing boob. room. Yeah, In the changing room, there's a guy who comes around. Oh, and he totally has a, he a, I totally missed it. He's hanging out. He has a penis, Dave.
1: <laughs> wow.
0: I also think you see Jack Nicholson's balls, but I, I oh, didn't Oh, like, uh, when he does the leg cross, when he does the basic
1: basic instinct. We got the Anne Margaret. Uh, yeah, boob and butt. Yeah.
0: Jack Nicholson saying, believe me, looks are everything. That's what he says in one thing. Except. It's not because he complains about her looks then later on in the movie, too. So he doesn't know what he wants, Dave. Let's talk about some of the. Let's do. Um, Are we calling this segment Critical uh, critics, Consent?
1: Critics', critics, critics Corn Critics' Choice. Critics' Choice.
0: Which we're changing it every week because I can't remember from last week what we call this. Critics' Choice. We're going to call this Critics' Choice. We're going to go back to the time. This is what Roger Ebert said about this movie. He gave this four out of four stars. Oh, wow. And he wrote, I would actually recommend anyone reading the full review because it's actually one of his better written ones, I think. But the section I took out was, with the perception and economy that mark their entire film, Nichols and his writer Jules Pfeiffer have established the theme of carnal knowledge in this handful of shots. The film will be about men who are incapable of reaching, touching or deeply knowing women. We meet the two men during their college years and follow them for maybe 20 years afterwards as they drift through a marriage apiece and several frustrating liaisons with the kinds of women they think they desire. Both men rely a great deal on their supposed sexual prowess, but both are are insecure sexually and the Nicholson character finally becomes impotent. Their problem, to the degree they share one, is that they try to find their fantasy, women in the flesh, and discover when the fantasy becomes real, that the real woman is all too real for them to live with and understand. The thing is, they both want to be dominated by women, only not really. So that's what he, in part, wrote about that. Anything you want to respond to, Mr. Ebert, about? Uh,
1: no. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I've made my... I just think that he, he we could be more right... If we had just given a little bit more for the women or a yeah. backstory for the women to uh, express exactly what he's talking about. thats all. This is
0: why I think you should be called David Kale <laughs> Yun because <laughs> she kind of agrees with you. She didn't do an outright pan of this movie. Like she didn't hate it, but she was kind of middle of the road on it. So... She writes Jules Pfeiffer, who wrote the screenplay, had what sounds like a promising idea to take two college roommates in the mid-1940s and follow their sexual attitudes and activities through to their middle age in the early 70s. But Pfeiffer rigged the case and wrote a grimly purposeful tract on depersonalization and how we use each other sexually as objects. And in the director of Mike Nichols's cold, slick style, the movie is like a neon sign spelling out the soullessness of neon. Glowering Jack Nicholson... Uh, is a jock with a big breast fixation and we watch him over the years yelling at his mistress and Margaret and exploding in frustration as he becomes more and more impotent until finally he's being lied to and serviced by a prostitute. Art Garfunkel? is a mild drip who goes from a dull, proper marriage with Candace Bergen to an affair with a snooty bitch and winds up with a curly-haired teenage hippie. It's a parallel history of dissatisfaction and emptiness, and as the men age, the picture scores off them repeatedly and never lets them win around. In the film's politicized morality, if well-heeled Americans have sex, it must be vile, because how could they possibly know anything about love? As Mike Nichols has directed the material, the effects are almost all achieved through the line readings and the cleverness is unpleasant. It's all service and whacking emphasis.
1: I have to start referring to people as drips more often. I know. She likes to use that word quite yeah. a bit. I like Paul a drip Lee. of person. She's fun. Yeah. yeah. I, she's the type of person where I would be scared of her in a coffee shop, but yeah. when I listen to how she absorbs and evaluates movies, I'm like, yeah, yeah, she she's got it. I get her.
0: By 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 the <laughs> way, her order at coffee shops is also a drip so wow we're done here well the machine said we have to wrap it's up like, on that up, joke shut up she right, yeah. says we have to wrap up uh dave of course i want to know a bunch of different uh, i want to know what your rating is going to be mm. for this movie but first we have to answer the age-old question does this movie hold up and is it still culturally relevant
1: uh, yeah it's a hard one i mean it is still beautiful with uh, certain moments like uh, from a, a cinematographic and directing sense um, yeah. it's visually pleasing still, if you're into older films, but as I said, the narrative itself is difficult to watch, which doesn't mean that people shouldn't watch it. These are universal problems on a theme thematic level. I just think that the modern audience either will feel they're too woke to accept the base premise of this thing uh, like you said, contextualizing that the women were not even really yet legal beings yet during the push for civil liberties not just you know for race but the, we forget often how much women had to fight for gender equality and still yeah. do really in in many yeah. uh, in many aspects i so, do sorry is
0: that a is that a no yes yeah so i don't no, know no? yeah yes, yes. it's like
1: a medium i feel like i'm just trying to imagine if i'm if i'm matt mort or if i'm alex williams
0: well that's do, not what yeah okay i guess i do these yeah.
1: themes appeal to me i will say i think like i said this will challenge a lot of heterosexual men even today oh yeah yeah uh, so for that reason i think it is still uh, reasonably culturally relevant and holds up i suppose yeah so i guess yeah, I can i'm
0: I'm, I'm going yes and yes for this this movie this week i do think it holds up like you said looks beautiful i think that the themes there are something that people still struggle with and that you can talk a lot about we just talked almost two hours about it dave so i think it's there and i think it holds up. i think there's a lot to like here um and I, like I said, I think it still feels modern now talking about where it's showed up in other places. Like there was a, a 1971 episode of all in the family that talked about this movie. <laughs> so of course, cultural relevance is there, Dave. Um, Yikes. More recently in 1992, there was two different episodes of television that talked about this movie. One was the wonder years, which had the boys trying to sneak into seeing this film oh, which for is interesting. All right. And the 1992 episode of Seinfeld had Jerry and George debate whether Candace Bergen showed her breasts in this movie, <laughs> which she does not. I should just point out, she does not.
1: Oh, didn't this movie almost get banned for its uh, sexual innuendo as well, for the sex sounds? Because this is one of the first oh, movies Oh, with...
0: I didn't read that, but maybe. I, I didn't I think read
1: that. I, I mean, I'll double check, but I think this they tried to ban this movie because of its uh, very realistic portrayals of sexual, I don't know, not just intercourse, but like uh, moments because there are a few. My noises are all X-rated. I, I'm surprised you didn't bring up with an opinion about having sex outdoors again. Because. Uh,
0: oh, yeah. Well, I mean, we <laughs> say this all the time, but it's like, even with that big furry coat, it's not going to be comfortable. <laughs> she, it's not going to be comfortable.
1: The, you know, and Candice Byrne's great because she did not look like she was enjoying it either.
0: No, not at all. <laughs> I mean, that is what Dave and I thought. What did you think? You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave at vs. The Machine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. If you want to see the entire list of films we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our Letterboxed page, which is letterboxd.com slash kdvstm. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There's a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support for as low as a dollar a month. And of course, we do not want you to donate if it in any way causes you financial hardship. Something that you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. And so, we get into the rating of this movie. Dave, out of five, Mm. what would you give Carnal Knowledge?
1: Yeah, I think my intuition is a three. Mm. Uh, Yeah. I mean, we had a great discussion about it, so it could be higher, but at the end of the day... I'm just overwhelmed by the cynicism in it, so right. I'm going
0: to stay at a three. And I love cynicism, so <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, – okay, so I, like I said, I love this movie. I loved it a lot. I do think some of the things you pointed out, I think maybe the overly cynical nature of this movie and the fact that I still don't think that it ultimately works that they're obviously 35 mm-hmm. in college at the very mm-hmm. beginning mm-hmm. – has me drop mine to a four point five, oh, Dave. Wow. So it's not a perfect score, but I liked it a lot. 15. Which means that it is currently tying with two other films. It's going to be high on our list here currently. So we have The French Connection and The Last Picture Show. Do you think that's better in the middle or at the bottom of that list? Hmm.
1: I think I would put it underneath both, just because uh, I like the other two films more. <laughs>
0: Here's the hard part about this, is that I definitely like The Last Picture Show more than this movie. I actually like The French Connection less, but let's just do that. That'll make it easy here for us. So that means that entering our list at the number four position is Carnal Knowledge. Ooh. Well, I am excited to know what we're going to be watching next week, Dave. I can't imagine what this machine has uh, in store for us. I'm going to push this button. Oh, this is actually gonna make for a really interesting double feature. So we watched Mike Nichols movie this week. Next week we're gonna watch Elaine May's first movie called A New Leaf. Oh directing. So we're gonna see the we're gonna see the Nichols mm-hmm. and May mm-hmm. movie. Yeah. Now I have actually seen this movie before, oh, wow. Dave. I've never so heard of it. I just need to let you know it is a comedy, which means people are not gonna be acting like real people because it's a comedy. <laughs>
1: don't, don't ruin it. So don't, don't ruin any your it. negativity next it.
0: week, Dave. Don't don't be negative next week, Dave.
1: You know, it's interesting, the irony that uh, you appear to be such a pleasant, happy-go-lucky person, (laughs) but you want darkness in your films. I want
0: darkness in my soul. And
1: I seem to be such a crabby, you know, naysayer, but I I want some brevity and lightness.
0: You want the emoji movie. (laughs) And I'm like, no, (laughs) Oh man, give me darkness (laughs) and depression, which is the emoji movie, actually a little bit. Well, Dave, I don't know. What do you want to do now? You want to look at my slideshow?
1: I don't know. I, uh, how long is it? Actually, don't answer that question.
0: (laughs) Oh, it's it's, it's only about like 45 minutes. And it's all about my, it's all about my uh, trip to the salt flats. So, slide one. This is the salt flats. (laughs) As far as the eye can see, Dave. This is also the salt flats. Can we go back a slide this one? I, I don't missed... remember the name of. Yeah but...
1: I, I missed the uh, I missed the first slide. I'm not ugly. I was just coded that way.